turn to uh, chapter 25. Uh, last week we began to look at this passage and talk about this sibling rivalry between Jacob uh, and Esau, the twin brothers who are the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. You remember Isaac comes from Abraham, and, and Abraham is the one to whom God gives the promise that his plan of redemption is going to come through uh, Abraham's lineage, through his offspring. And so we're now to, to the grandchildren, to the, to the grandsons of Abraham, and looking uh, at the lives of Jacob and Esau. This morning we're going to consider, uh, starting verse 27 and reading through uh, verse 34, and you can follow along in your Bibles, or the passage will be... Uh, on the screen uh, as we go along. So hear the word of God. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom is a a word in the Hebrew which sounds like the word red. Jacob said to him, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. A birthright, by the way, is the uh, inheritance of the firstborn. Esau was the, the first of the twin brothers born to Rebekah, and, uh, and by uh, that birth order, he was to receive you know, 95% of the inheritance, and Isaac was a very rich man, so that's a, that's a whole lot of money. So Jacob says, swear he swears, and he sells his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. We pray with me. Father, this morning we come to, uh, to sit under your word and to absorb it into our hearts and our minds. We ask that your Holy Spirit uh, would cause us to uh, give careful attention to what you have to say. Father, we're very distracted by the busyness of the world. Last week, There was a lot going on, and this week holds much of the same. Father, we may be tempted during this uh, time of kind of quiet to make grocery lists and to to think about the things we need to do, but Lord, I I pray that you would center our attention on what you want to say to us this morning. Father, it's not my word that's important. It's my word's irrelevant. I am a mere man. It is only the eternal word of God that holds the power over life and death and eternity. It is only ultimately the word of God that has any significant meaning uh, for our lives today. Lord, I know I I won't do this justice, but I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, make us attentive to what you want to teach us because you love us and you care for your children. Father, forgive my sin. I pray that it wouldn't stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that we could sit at your feet. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, perhaps you've used this phrase before, you've heard it used before, when somebody looks at a scenario kind of around them and they say, this is an accident looking for a place to happen. Uh, most often you use it with things like a four-year-old in a baseball bat in a living room. Uh, that would be a place where you might say, this is an accident looking for a place to happen. It's when you kind of assess the landscape and you begin to think, you know what, we could be in big trouble here for some reason or another. I'm going to use that phrase this morning, an accident looking for a place to happen, because I think it describes these two brothers. 
these two twin brothers who were born uh, to Jacob and, or to, uh, to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, and the promise that was made by God that the older one would serve the younger, that the younger would actually be the one through whom the promise given to Abraham would come. Uh, and so we see the lineage uh, of redemption of Christ being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's some other aspects about their relationship. It's not just uh, God's uh, promise of a certain rank or a certain order that, that really is a, of concern this morning. Uh, what's more of concern is the situation or the scenario that's painted in this family that, that creates uh, the opportunity, at least, uh, for this accident. I want to talk about it in terms of their different personalities. In verses 27 and 28, it says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Uh, they were very different in their personalities. Esau's, you know, he's the, he's the hunter-gatherer. He's kind of this big, burly guy. We, we read earlier last week, if you were here, you know that he's kind of a hairy guy. And, and uh, you know, he was the guy that would get out there and he would go hunting. And he would be the guy who'd be up at first light and gone all day. And he would come back and regale the camp with stories of how he brought down the, this, this big buck or this bear or whatever. And then he's the kind of guy that you sit around the campfire and Esau tells the stories. And he's kind of a man's man, so to speak. Esau's the guy who's, who's, who's the outdoorsman. He's strong. He's, he's physically confident. If you've ever uh, seen the movie Jeremiah Johnson, you know, he's kind of like Jeremiah Johnson. He's the, he's the guy that's up there in the mountains. He doesn't even know what month of the year it is. He's just out there, uh, you know, kind of doing it and, and living on the edge, living in the, in the moment itself. And that's, that describes Esau. Now, ironically, he has a twin brother who is nothing like that. These guys couldn't be more different. You wouldn't look at them and go, oh, look at Isaac and Rebecca's twins. You'd probably look at them and say, they're twins. Really, they don't look that much alike. They certainly don't act that much alike. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. That, that Hebrew phrase there, Jacob was a quiet man, has, has the connotation of he was a, a, a solid man. He, he was sound of mind. He wasn't necessarily boisterous. He wasn't necessarily always voicing his opinions, but he certainly was a person that was kind of a, of some solid uh, mental capacity. Derek Kidner, the theologian, writes this, the level-headed quality that made Jacob at his best toughly dependable and at his worst a formidably cool opponent. These guys were very, very different men, and that difference is going to create some challenges for them. But not only do they have different personalities, but they also have different patrons. Look at that second verse, verse 28. We talked about this a little bit last week. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Not going to rehash why all of this might have taken place, but to suffice it to say, these parents have favorites. Isaac absolutely adores Esau. It's, it's his boy. Uh, they're cut out of the same cloth, perhaps. For whatever reason, Isaac dotes on Esau. And for whatever reason, in her own mind, Rebecca does the same with Jacob. And so they, they have different people influencing them in a very significant way. And I think the, these different personalities... Uh, and their parents making this terrible mistake to play favorites among their children leads me to believe that this is an accident looking for a place to happen. 
in my mind, I see these two cars coming to an intersection where there's no stop sign and one's coming from the right and one's coming from the left and there's a big hedge and they don't see each other and they're both barreling down the road and they're on a collision course that perhaps they don't even see. And my thought as I look at, at these descriptive words in this passage is, this can't be good. This isn't going to end well for anybody. Now, I'm going to continue on using in the sermon the metaphor of the accident. And I'm going to look at this passage in terms of that. And I want us to stop and think just for a moment about the people that are around or in some way involved in observing or interacting with an accident. Typically, you have the folks who are the first responders, you know, the the emergency personnel that are on the scene. Or perhaps there's been an accident and a passerby stops to help out. When we lived on Lookout Mountain, oftentimes you would hear about folks going down the mountain, which is a pretty long, uh, about five, six mile from top to bottom. It's just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you've ever seen the Sea Rock City, Ruby Falls, you know, okay, I guess people shaking their heads. I know the guy who's who's the owner of Rock City and put those 17,000 billboards out around the highway in that area. Uh, But you'd often hear people, their brakes going out as they go down the mountain. I was driving down the mountain one day, and I was a, uh, there was a car in front of me, and then in front of that car was an 18-wheeler. And you can smell the brakes burning when you're behind them. And you could tell that that truck was kind of starting to swerve, and the, the brakes were being applied more, and there was smoke coming out from the tires, and it was not slowing down. It had lost its brakes. And as they got towards the bottom of the mountain, there were, it ended up there were two guys in the cab. And the guy sitting in the passenger side dives out the right side of the truck. And the guy sitting in the driver's seat does the same out of the left side of the truck. Now, the guy that jumped out on this side ended up in some bushes, and he got banged up and broke some bones, but it kind of uh, cushioned his fall, and he ended up going to the hospital and recovering and being okay. The guy that jumped out of the driver's side hit the pavement on the back of his head. The car in front of me immediately pulls over. I pull over. We hop out. The guy in front of me is a doctor. He's on his way to Erlanger Medical Center, which is a big hospital in downtown Chattanooga, and he starts to work on this guy who's bleeding profusely from the back of his head. And my job as an emergency first responder who has absolutely no skill whatsoever as this guy is, they're literally in the middle. The, the yellow lines on the road are literally right there underneath this guy. I'm just standing here trying to flag traffic away so that this guy does, the doctor doesn't get hit while he's trying to help this guy who, who dies right there in front of us. So you have people that that come upon an accident and are immediately involved in it on some level. And that that takes some kind of emotional engagement as well as as a physical and mental engagement. But I was also, I had the experience one time where we were coming over to North Middle to the school to pick up one of our kids from a middle school dance and there was an accident out in front of the the building. And the police officer directing traffic got hit by a, a car driving by. And we had come on the scene, and, and, and the principal at the school at the time, a good friend of ours, Jeanette Tendai, she knew I was a pastor. She called me over. She called Cindy and said, hey, you know, hey, could you just kind of get involved and help folks? So we kind of got involved. We talked. The man who had, who had hit the police officer was very shaken up. Uh, talked to the police officer as they were putting him in the ambulance. And then I ran out to St. John's just to kind of check and make sure he was okay. When I walked into the trauma unit at St. John's, I don't know if you remember this. This was several years ago. But there was a youth group outing by some church way out in the country. They were on a hayride, and the wagon turned over. And several kids were, were hurt terribly. And as I was coming into the trauma unit at St. John's, parents were arriving. And they had come and they were trying to find out about the condition of their children. You can only imagine the tension in that room as that scene unfolded. So you have people that come and try to help. You have, you have parents who are trying to check on their kids, somebody who has a family member involved. And then there, there's another group of folks that sometimes are around an accident. And those are people that are casual observers. They're people that I call the morbidly curious. 
They're driving down the highway. They see an accident and they slow down. My wife, Cindy, I love her. God bless her. She's an outstanding woman. She has so many great quality traits. She's a morbidly curious person. She's going to stop down, stop, slow down. She wants to see what happened. Now, those people have a huge range of emotions. Why, do I, why am I going down this road and taking so much time with this? It's because of this. We're going to come upon the scene of an accident in this passage of Scripture. It's not our accident. We're not involved. It didn't happen to us. We can be casual observers and we can whistle and go our way. Or we can stop and emotionally engage with what God may be saying to us this morning. Because the truth of the matter is, is we're engaged in this kind of accident. We live in a fallen and broken world. And what happens between these brothers is something that describes human relationships all around the world and right in this very room. And I don't think that God wants us to be casual observers today. I think he wants to speak directly to us about our part in this accident. So I want to encourage you to not just look at this as an interesting story out of antiquity, but to consider its application for your life. We're going to look at it this way. We're going to look at the intersection. We're going to look at the collision. And we're going to look at the accident report. What's the intersection? Verses 29 and 30. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. I want you to, to look at Jacob for a minute. He's busy. He's cooking stew. We've already read that he's, he's a man that is quiet. He dwells among the tents, and, and Jacob's comfortable in the kitchen. Now, I don't cook very often, but occasionally I cook. And I'll run to the grocery store sometime in my day off, and I'll, before I do that, I'll get the cookbook, and I'll pick a recipe. And, and I'm not just talking about hamburgers and french fries. I'll try to actually cook something. And I'll go and get the ingredients, and then you get back in the kitchen, and you get to, you get to work, and then you turn on the radio, and you just kind of have fun figuring the whole deal out. And I'm, I'm an okay cook. I'm certainly not a good cook. But I've made stew before. Now, I know that really impresses a lot of you. I mean, stew is a difficult, difficult thing to, to make. You've got to chop up potatoes. You got to chop up carrots. You got to chop up the meat. You got to chop up celery. Your hands are very busy when you make stew, but your mind is free to wander. You don't sit there and go, I want to consider the origin of the carrot. I mean, you just don't think that way, right? You're cutting up carrots, and I'm thinking about the kids and who's doing what in school and what's going on this weekend and what's my sermon this Sunday. Think about you, your hands are busy, but your mind is free. And here's Jacob with busy hands and a free mind. And Jacob is pondering and he's thinking. He knows God's promise that, the, that, the, that he's going to be the chosen son. He knows that and he, maybe he's thinking to himself, I wonder how all of this is going to come about. Now you have to remember that Jacob's name literally means he cheats. He cheats. Jacob's the kind of guy that's a schemer. Jacob's the kind of guy that's a, a, a conniver. And so he doesn't necessarily, as he's think, cutting up his carrots and cutting up his stew, he isn't necessarily taking the moral high ground when he's thinking about how this birthright is going to come to him. He's not saying, boy, I wonder how the Lord and all of his faithfulness and goodness is going to do this. He's probably thinking to himself, is there a way that I could rig this deal to go in my favor? There's a guy that lived on my floor in college. His name was Richard Brooks call him Dickie Brooks. And Dickie paid for his college tuition and his books and his room and board by betting the ponies on his hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. He made thousands of dollars every summer betting the ponies. The reason he was so good at that is he started going to the track when he was 10 years old and he got to know the jockeys. And he got to know which horse wasn't doing too good. And he got to know which jockey you know, had a little bit too much sauce before the, r the race began. He got the inside scoop and he always won the bets. 
Vicky was a conniver. He was a schemer. He was a planner. Our junior year of college, we wanted to have a blowout on our hall the, the end of the school year. Wanted to have a big barbecue, wanted to go over to the park, have a big softball game. The problem was there were about 30 of us, and between all 30 of us, we pulled all our money together. We had about $6.32. <laughs> you can't have a big party on $6.32, even in 1979. Vicky says, no problem. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a fundraiser. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a rockathon. We're going to go collect rocking chairs. We're going to put them out in front of the college. This was in April. It's a beautiful weekend. And we're going to challenge every floor to a rockathon. They're going to get a representative. They're going to put them in the rocking chair and they're going to rock the whole weekend. We'll play music. It'll be a lot of fun. Whoever rocks the longest will, their, their floor will buy them a pizza party and we'll pick about 200 bucks. And the way we're going to make money is everybody's going to sponsor their rocker to the tune of a quarter an hour or 50 cents an hour. He said, we're going to sponsor our guy for a dollar an hour. Now, I'm not the brightest guy. You know, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, but I started doing the math, and I'm going, that's like $72 a piece if he goes the whole weekend. You know, we got $6.30. How is this going to work? And Dickie says, trust me, boys. Just everybody sign up. So we put up posters. Hey, come. And some of the, some of the money is going to charity, okay? Some would be the key word in that sense. And, uh, and we, you know, hey, we're all going a dollar an hour. Come on, sign up. So we literally raise about, about we, we have the potential to raise about $1,200. And we get the rockathon started. And I'm going, how is this going to work? Well, lo and behold, our guy on our floor rocks for about two minutes. And he says, this is stupid. And he gets up and he leaves. And Dickie's just kind of sitting in the back and he's smiling, having a good time. All these other people are rocking all weekend. Didn't cost us a dime. We literally end up with about $1,200. We give 200 bucks to this floor that wanted to have this party of their, you know, pizza party for them. We give about $25 to the local charity and we're eating steak and lobster at our, at our end of the year party. We're consuming some other things I won't go into now, but we're having an amazing time. Dickie's mind just worked that way, but you really wouldn't want to leave him with your wallet. And that's Jacob. He's a conniver. And part of this intersection we have to understand is Jacob's character. And then there's Esau, who also arrives at this intersection. I'm exhausted. He's physically spent. We would say today he had low blood sugar. He's famished. He needs some immediate relief. Remember, Esau's a man of the field. He just kind of goes and whatever's in front of him is happening now. That's what's most important. And what's most important to Esau right now is he's got to get some food in him. He is just starving. Brace yourselves for the impact because there's a collision. Look at verses 31 through 33. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob is a cool customer. He's scheming. He's pressing his advantage. I would dare say that he's been waiting for this moment to arrive, and he's actually positioned his pot of stew in the optimal place where his brother's going to come in from the field. He's observed. He's watched. Jacob's the kind of guy that steps back. He looks at the big picture, and he figures out how to play it to his advantage. And he knows his brother is impulsive, prone to rash decisions without thinking through the ramifications. And Jacob is very purposeful. He has a long-term goal in mind. Sell me your birthright right now. Jacob exhibits little faith. 
He knows that he's the child of the promise, but this action is not an action of one who is trusting in God to work out the deals because one that trusts God with the details also exhibits God's character in their own life. Jacob is not loving his brother Esau at this moment. Jacob is setting his brother up for a terrible fall. Jacob has one person and one person alone in his mind, and that's Jacob. There's no faith involved in his decision. He's callous at best, but more likely this is a premeditated push to get himself in the best position. In a sense, Jacob smells blood in the water. A lot of you know I coach hockey, little kids on up. And uh, the worst lead you can have in a hockey game, I'd put Bob Colette on the spot right now, but I'm not going to do it, but I know he'd know the answer. The worst lead to have in a hockey game is 3-1. to one. The reason that's a bad lead is because if you get up 3-1 to one fairly early on in the game, you think you can cruise. You know, these guys are nothing. We can kind of see, and you start to slow down, and your team doesn't play very well. Kind of eases off the, the accelerator, so to speak. Uh, if they get another goal and they go up, they get to three to two. Now we're starting to get a little bit nervous. Now the collars getting a little tight. Our hands are getting a little tight on the sticks. We're not making the passes quite as well. All of a sudden it's three to three, four to three. Oh, we're in big trouble. Three to one's a terrible lead to have in a hockey game unless you can get to that next goal. Four to one's the ideal lead to have in a hockey game. So I, I know this, and when I'm coaching my guys, I get them over at the bench and say, okay, now, boys, we got them right where we want them. We're up three to one. We're better than them. They know we're better than them right now, but they might not have it all sunk in. So we got to hold them down while we got them down. We got we to get them around the throat, and we got to squeeze the life out of them. We got to put this baby away. You know, and these seven-year-olds are looking up at me like, Coach, what? what, what are you? One kid's raising his hand saying, what, what flavor Kool-Aid are we having after the game? Are, are there snacks? You know, choke the lot. Well, I don't understand. We get a little carried away sometimes as coaches. Jacob has is, is, is got Esau by the throat. And he wants to finish the deal. He wants to finish him off. He smells the blood in the water. And here's Esau, foolishly nearsighted, childlessly impulsive, childishly impulsive. Uh, our, our youngest Jordan is 18, and there will be times when he comes in, and he, he's been at hockey practice, and he'll walk in, and he'll, moms know this, what do they say? I'm what? I'm starving. I'm going to die. I got to have a bag of Oreos. <laughs> I got to have three Big Macs from McDonald's. I'm going to die. This is, this is I don't mean my son's childish, but it's what kids do. There, there's a lack of perspective. Isaac, or uh, excuse me, Esau isn't going to die. He's the son of one of the richest men in the area. If he walks past uh, his brother's pot of stew in the camp as it's getting close to dinner time. There are probably two dozen more pots of stew at his disposal. He can only see what's immediately in front of him and the aroma reminds him how much he wants to eat. He's not dying. He's simply hungry. But his lack of perspective is astounding. As I read scripture, I think this is about the second worst decision in the history of the Bible. I think the first worst decision is Judas selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is by far and away the worst decision ever in the history of mankind. But this is a terrible decision. I was, trying to, I was talking to Katie about this yesterday and trying to explain to her. I said, Katie, it'd be like if you came home and you said, I'm really hungry right now, Dad. And I said, okay, Katie, you can have five bucks or, or 10 bucks to run up to Einstein's and get your favorite little sandwich up there and snack. Uh, and you can have that right now. Or if you could just wait a little while till dinner and then I'll give you $10 million. And Katie's saying, well, Dad, give me the $10. I'm hungry now. I mean, it's that ludicrous of a decision. And this perspective he has is hasty. It's careless. And Esau discards a priceless family position for momentary satisfaction that won't last. 
So now we have a crash. We've met at the intersection, and the accident has occurred. What's our report? How do we, how do we line all this up? What, what, what do we take away from this? Well, first of all, we have to remember that God's providence is not absent this scenario. Okay? Back in, in verse 23 of this chapter, God said to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. God is in control. But that doesn't mean there's any godly behavior being exhibited amongst these two brothers. God's providence, God's plan, God's initiatives are not thwarted by man. You cannot change what God is going to do. In God's mind, he sees the beginning from the end. There is nothing outside of his purview. And God is perfect in his understanding and his execution of his plan of redemption. And we cannot change that. And we have to see this pic, this, this story and this accident. We have to see it in the context of God's providence. But what about these men? What will we report? Well, Jacob has a poor understanding of the character of God. The one who has offered the promise is also the one who says, trust me. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't know what my truth is and go in an opposite direction because you think you're trying to help me get to where you want to go. Rest in me. I'm sure Jacob believed the promise, but he practiced manipulation, not faith. And he planted seeds of relational friction for years to come. This action and subsequent one we'll look at in the next few weeks is going to tear this family apart. Although God is caring for his plan of redemption, Jacob acts as one who looks nothing like the God of Abraham and Isaac. And then there's Esau, impulsive, short-sighted. I would dare say that Esau's actions are offensive. I rarely use that term. I don't like to say someone's actions are offensive. It sounds a little bit spiritually arrogant to me, but I think in this case, the shoe fits. How could Esau, knowing what he knows, having the background that he has, demonstrate a complete lack of regard for his family and for his faith? This blunder, I believe, is inexcusable. The author of Hebrews says as much. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but listen to these words out of chapter 12 of Hebrews. See to it that no one is... Wait a minute, I lost my place. I'm sorry. I don't know where am I. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author of Hebrews says that that Esau was sexually immoral. He was an unholy man. He says that Esau was a man that lived only for the moment, only for immediate gratification. And that was the worst way in which Esau could possibly live. And so our accident report says God is going to, he's going to complete his will. But he's going to do it in spite of these two guys instead of through them at this particular moment. It's a sad story. But before we judge too harshly, before I say, well, boy, I sure am glad that that I never have had that kind of experience, I would suggest that my circumstances and perhaps yours as well reveal some similar character flaws. I think the accident report goes just a bit further, and I indulge your attention for just a couple more minutes. 
The first thing I want to mention is I, I don't want to let Rebecca and Isaac off the hook too quickly. I'm not going to dwell on this, but moms and dads, we need to review our parenting skills. We need to review the decisions we make about how we are raising our kids on a daily basis. I don't mean that I'm walking around Green Tree going, oh, this family's no good. And that, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying to all of us who are parents, we should on a daily basis prayerfully consider how we're raising our children because these folks did it terribly, terribly wrong. To play favorites among, amongst your children is one of the worst things that you can do for your children or actually to your children. On the other hand, we need to ask ourselves, are we, am I creating a godly environment for my kids? Am I helping them learn what unity of family is about? And I, am I teaching them how to care for their brothers and their sisters well? Am I teaching them the importance of, of looking out for one another and serving one another as Christ served us? I think as parents, it's paramount for those of us who are in that stage of life that we are careful in the way we raise our children. But for all of us here this morning, I want to remind you that God's providence is still very much in place. God's plan of redemption comes all the way down to this morning right here at Green Tree Community Church. Do we rest in that grace and in that providence in every area of our lives? Or are we too like Jacob to be found manipulating and working in a way that is ungodly because we want our lives to work out a certain way? Are we rewriting scripture, so to say, for our own purposes? I'll talk to people from time to time, and, and like myself, they will, they will look for ways to uh, twist the scriptures or, or twist their understanding of relationship with God to make it fit the decisions that they have made. And I do that as well. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were using the word authoritarian in a negative sense. And I said, when my family accuses me of being authoritarian, I kind of think it's a compliment. I kind of think, I'm, you know, I kind of feel good about that. What a terrible thing to say. What an awful thing. No father should be authoritarian. You carry authority, but you carry it with humility with gentleness and with grace? Am I willingly submitting not only to God in theory, but God in practice and trusting Him and resting in His care? Or am I improvising and changing the scenario a bit so that I can sleep at night while I rebel against God? Jacob was the child of the promise, but he in no way reflected the grace of his heavenly Father. And then the last observation on this accident report is this. Do we have a proper perspective of God's direction or are we blindly living for the moment? Esau was a man who couldn't see beyond what was immediately in front of him. He had no perspective. And I'm fearful that there are times when I'm going through my life that I have no eternal perspective, that I forget that God is in charge. And I might be in a momentarily in a tough spot, but that's okay because God's going to get me home. You ever complete the sentence like this? God, I'll die if I can't have what? You know, if I can't have, maybe you're single and you want to be married. God, I'm going to die if I can't have a spouse. You know, maybe you're married and you so long to have kids and you say, God, I'm going to die if I can't have kids. You know what? Be, be desiring to be married, desiring to have kids is a great thing. These aren't sinful things. These aren't, these aren't terrible things. But when we make them idols, they become a pot of stew when the entire inheritance is right at our feet. And we despise our birthright because the only answer to that sentence is, God, I'll die if I can't have you. And Esau never saw that. What's your interest in this sibling accident this morning? Are you a casual observer, morbidly curious, but ready to get on your way? Or will we perhaps stop? 
and really engage in the truth that's found in this passage. God's will cannot be thwarted. But the impact on our lives and how we trust in him or instead live for the moment or manipulate for our own purposes can be, bring great spiritual harm to our own souls. You'll have to be the judge of how you look at this accident. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Father, I pray that, that we wouldn't kind of whistle past it and say, well, that's too bad, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me. Rather, Father, I pray that you would use it as a lens for us to look into our hearts. Perhaps I'm, I'm more like Jacob. Perhaps I'm a manipulator. I want to work things to my advantage. I'm going to make it look good. I'm going to make it sound right. I mean, Jacob can say, look, I fed my brother because he told me he was dying. Father, perhaps we're like Esau. We just live for the moment. We don't bother to look beyond the next five minutes, much less the next five days or five years. We don't have the eternal perspective that you have about our own souls. Father, wherever we may find ourselves, if we're willing to look honestly into the story, I pray that your grace would come and would redeem. Father, you eventually redeem this story. These brothers eventually are reunited. But Lord, there's a lot of damage that takes place in the meantime. And I think of the decisions I make when I don't trust you and, and, and what I could have avoided if I simply had. So Father, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and minds as you so will for our good, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.